Welcome to Know Your Bible, a program presented by the Churches of Christ and devoted to helping you understand God's Word. The Bible is a book inspired by God that contains answers to your questions. The Bible reveals Jesus and explains His sacrifice, contains God's plan for the family, and timeless principles of parenting. Also has the truth about life and death. The Bible contains great financial advice and also answers questions of morality. Join us as we look for answers to your questions and help you know your Bible. Welcome back to Know Your Bible. Glad that you're here this morning and ready to study the Bible. We're ready to answer a few questions for you, and that's what we do on this program is try to help all of us learn our Bibles a little better uh, by answering whatever questions you might have about the Bible or something in life that the Bible has some comments on or principles on. We're happy to try to find answers to any of those things, and we think that'll help us know our Bibles better. So that's what we do, and the way you get in touch with us, a phone number and a website on the screen, use those anytime. Uh, get in touch with us, tell us what's on your mind, what you'd like us to talk about, and you'll direct the program from here on. So let's uh, get my partner here in the picture, Toby Lever, and good morning, Toby. Glad you're here and ready to go, and we've got uh, some good ones saved up, but always got one for our viewers first. So here yours, here's your question for the day. Who was Lot's uncle, a fellow in the Old Testament named Lot? Who was his uncle? And we'll give you the answer at the end of the program. See if you know that bit of Bible history. Uh, Toby, looks like you got a financial question here to start yes. us off. Have you ever asked the question about usury, which is not a word we use a lot anymore? What does the Bible say about usury? Uh, well, usury, if you don't aren't familiar with that term, simply means an excessive or abusive amount of, of interest on a loan. Uh, the modern-day equivalent of that would be payday lenders, uh, uh, folks that uh, uh, prey upon the poor and abuse those who can least afford to make uh, such high-interest loans, and uh, they just uh, uh, wear them out. So if you've ever been tempted to go down that way, uh, avoid avoid that entirely. Uh, the Bible warns a lot about it too, uh, b uh, to both in the Old Testament and the New. Uh, in the Old Testament, Exodus 22:25, we'll put that verse on the screen. If you loan money to my people, to the poor among you, don't be like a creditor to them and don't impose interest on them. Uh, the verses uh, many of the verses about usury specifically uh, were almost exclusively um, uh, in the Old Testament, and they kept the Israelites from financially abusing one another and uh, taking advantage of one another. Uh, the principle under the New Testament, uh, debt in and of itself is not a sin, uh, but it's also not a blessing. Proverbs 22, 7, which will not be on the screen, but you can look up at home. The rich rule over the poor. The borrower is slave to the lender. And so, um, you know, the, the less debt you have, the more freedom you have uh, to use the debt or to use the income, rather, that God's given you uh, in a way that blesses others and that is good stewardship of what God's given you. Uh, I, I think if uh, today, if you want to really help someone and you have the means to do so, uh, instead of giving them a loan, uh, just give them a gift. Uh, Jesus said uh, something about this in Luke chapter 6. But love your enemies, 
do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So those are a few of the things which the scriptures say about usury. All righty, thank you. we got one about uh, the Lord's Day. The viewer says, when John refers to the Lord's Day, how do we know it was Sunday? Well, I assume we answered a question about <clears throat> Revelation being written, and John said something about the Lord's Day, and we just said it was Sunday. And uh, you said, how do you know that was Sunday? Well, it's a good question. Uh, we just say that because that's what we call Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. But there is a reason we call it that. Uh, both the New Testament and secular history uh, refer to Sunday that way. Now, Revelation 1.10 is where that <laughs> verse is found. Let me just read that to you. Revelation 1.10. Uh, on the Lord's day, John the Revelator says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So the revelation started on the Lord's day. That, interestingly, is the only place in the New Testament that that term is used exactly. Now, the Bible does say things about the day of the Lord a lot, but that's a different thing. The day of the Lord is referring to his second coming and when he returns. But the Lord's day, that's the only place that uses that exact term. But we know that Christians did worship on Sunday, and secular history and the New Testament tell us that. Uh, let me read a little quote here from uh, a Christian named Justin who wrote in about 150 A.D., and he was defending the Christian faith and explaining the Christian faith. And here's what he says about their meetings. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we said before, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine are brought but Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly, because it's the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world, and Jesus Christ our Savior on the same day rose from the dead. So it's the Lord's day. It was the day he rose from the dead. And in the New Testament, Acts 20 and verse 7 is one place that confirms that. Acts 20 and verse 7, the writer says, On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread, have communion, like Justin mentioned, and Paul preached. So that was their common assembly. They met on the Lord's Day. So that's why we think John was talking about Sunday, and I think that's a pretty good assumption. Okay, good answer. And uh, the next question is a person asked first about a scripture in First Kings. In First Kings 19, verses 19 through 21, did Elisha ever go back to kiss his mother and father? All right. Well, that's a little bit of a, a, a very specific question, and that's okay. We're appreciative of people who are reading their Bibles and maybe a little curious about some things. Um, let's give you a little bit of context here. Uh, Elijah is in this section of his story feeling a little discouraged. Uh, he feels alone, and God attempts to encourage him, to remind him that there are 7,000 people that even though he feels all alone as a prophet, there are still 7,000 people who have not bowed their knee to Baal. 
And God also, as a process, I think, of encouragement uh, to help him, uh, God sends him an assistant, a helper, Elisha, who will eventually uh, take his place. And this is the context of the calling of Elisha. Now we'll look at these uh, verses on the screen that you ask about. First Kings chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And uh, Elisha uh, left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And continuing on, And Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And Elisha returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then Elisha arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Well, to understand that, uh, we know, we realize that uh, what Elijah is doing in calling him, putting his cloak around him, is asking him to leave his way of life and his family behind. And that was not a, no, no small decision uh, for him to follow Elijah. And so I, I think he did, likely as a process of, of leaving all of that behind, go back and say to his parents goodbye and this is what I'm doing this is why I've been called and we don't know how long that took the scripture doesn't say in fact the scripture really doesn't say precisely whether or not Elisha told his parents goodbye uh, but I think the principle is this and in fact um, if you're interested uh, Jesus kind of uh, I think referred to this story a little bit in and this won't be on the screen but you're welcome to to look it up on your own Luke chapter 9 verses 57 through 62 and Jesus there speaking about the cost of being a disciple says these words um, he says uh, he said to another man follow me and the man said Lord Lord first let me go and bury my father and Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then he says this, uh, the scripture says this, Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And I think, uh, of course, in the context we understand what he's saying there is following Jesus will cost you something. You'll have to leave some things behind. Uh, and you'll have to leave behind your old way of life, uh, just as Elisha did. So uh, the scripture doesn't precisely say, I think personally that he did, uh, but that's reading my interpretation into it. So I hope that helps and helps us understand Elisha <laughs> and Elijah a little bit more. <laughs> I was thinking, as careful as you were yeah. being to pronounce those two and how hard that is to get them different. That's right. That would not be good names for twins. No, you know, not at all. I've <laughs> had twin boys. Don't name them Elijah and Elisha. Let's <laughs> say he's calling you. Yeah. <laughs> all right, let me uh, talk to you just a moment about a good way to study the Bible. Uh, we've obviously got some pretty serious <laughs> Bible students watching this program to ask a question like that. Uh, a detail that a lot of people would miss, uh, but we've also got folks viewing that don't study the Bible much just because they never got started in it. If you'd like to get started uh, in being a good Bible student and knowing your Bible better, we've got some tools that we think are a great way to do that. We've got some uh, 
courses we'll send to you in the mail. Here's the first set that we usually start with. And it's a very basic introduction to the Bible, good overview. Then we've got uh, some other more advanced courses that go into more depth about one book or one topic. And, uh, a great way to continue your Bible study. And we've recently added some online courses that you can take. Uh, the World Bible School has helped us set up an area where you can respond to oneway.worldbibleschool.org and we will get you your lessons and you can do paper lessons uh, if you want, but main new offering is that you can do it on your uh, home computer, your tablet, your phone, wherever you are, you can work on a lesson uh, and a study helper will be assigned to help you through that. So good way to do it, easy, handy, no postage. Uh, we're glad to offer that to you. So respond to that website uh, or just respond to the phone number and the website on your screen if you'd like one of the traditional courses. We'll get it started for you and you can know your Bible a little bit better. All right, viewer wants to know, when did the Jewish people quit sacrificing animals to God? Well, obviously the Jews in the Old Testament sacrificed animals uh, in the temple, in the tabernacle first, and then in the temple. And Jewish people today don't make animal sacrifices. So this viewer says, well, when did that stop? Well, some Jews uh, quit sacrificing animals when they became Christians. Uh, so 33 A.D. or somewhere in there, uh, on for a number of years, as soon as a Jewish person uh, accepted Jesus as the Messiah, and became a Christian, they probably stopped making animal sacrifices. But in general, the Jewish people uh, who did not accept Jesus as the Messiah stopped in 70 A.D. Uh, 70, that was the year that the Roman general Titus marched into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Uh, just as Jesus had prophesied he would, by the way. Uh, when the temple was destroyed, there was no longer a place to make sacrifices. Uh, the Old Testament, you may wonder about that. The Old Testament, God told the people, don't just sacrifice anywhere. Uh, you can't just set up an altar anywhere you want. you got to do it where I authorize uh, in the temple that Solomon originally built. Uh, that's the place where I authorize sacrifices. So that temple's been destroyed. It's never been rebuilt. Uh, so the Jewish people don't have a place to offer sacrifices. So 70 A.D. was the day they quit. You were asked the question, uh, do young children have, um, who have died go to heaven? And uh, that uh, question can be answered affirmatively, yes, they do. Uh, little children are safe uh, from the eternal consequences of sin. Uh, we might, so I've heard some refer to it as an unaccountable state. Uh, they're considered innocent, and as such, uh, until they reach a certain age, which the Bible doesn't really strictly define, but a certain age at which they understand their sin and the consequences of sin and all of that, until they reach that point, uh, they are uh, safe in God's eyes. And this would include young children and uh, certainly uh, folks with uh, uh, special needs, mental uh, capacities that are limited in understanding. And we believe that they are safe. Uh, one scripture that tells us that or that gives us the understanding of Jesus' perspective on children is Mark chapter 10. And we'll look at this on the screen, verses 13 through 16. <clears throat> they were bringing children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. 
But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands upon them. Uh, our world uh, can be a rough place. It can be especially difficult for children. We hear about horrible things that happen to children all the time. Uh, <clears throat> some people uh, see children as a, as a burden, as uh, something just to be dealt with. Uh, we don't want to really have them bothering, certainly teachers and religious people. That was how they felt with Jesus. Uh, Jesus says quite the opposite. He says, in fact, these little children, uh, we can learn some things from their faith and from uh, their innocence and from their joy for life. Uh, I think that is uh, some of the attributes of, of God's people. Now, that doesn't mean we should be immature or not be serious-minded, but to be childlike in our faith, to be trusting in the Lord. And uh, Jesus indicates to us that uh, He loves them, and when they tragically pass away, uh, which we would never want to conceive of or would want anyone to go through, but we know it does happen. Uh, the comfort we can take is knowing that they are safe in the presence with the Lord. All right. Thank you, Toby. Uh, viewer wants to know about who produces this program, what's your denomination, and who authors your material. Well, we don't talk a whole lot about that on this program. Uh, we just study the Bible as fast as we can, uh, but it's a fair question. Uh, we do have something at the end of the program, I think, a presentation of the Northside Church of Christ uh, in Wichita, Kansas. So that's the home church of Know Your Bible. And in general, our denomination, as our viewer asks, is the Churches of Christ. Uh, now, we don't call it a denomination, uh, but if you're looking for a congregation of the, the church, that's what it says on the sign out front. Uh, church of Christ, or a Church of Christ, or some signs say uh, uh, the Church of Christ meets here. Uh, so, Churches of Christ are a group that uh, do not claim to be a denomination. Denomination means uh, to come up with a name to set yourself apart uh, from other Christians, uh, like money denominations. A $5 bill is different than a $10 bill. Well, there's lots of, you open these yellow pages, and there's lots of denominations of Christianity. Uh, churches of Christ try not to do that. Uh, that's why we use the term a church of Christ, because that's one thing that the Bible calls the church. It belongs to Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church. So it's his church. Uh, when Paul wrote to uh, the Christians in Rome, and Paul visited with lots of other Christians, uh, in Romans 16, 16, closing the letter, he said, all the churches of Christ send you greetings. Uh, so all the groups of Christians that Paul visited sent greetings to the church that belonged to Christ in Rome. Uh, so that's where we get that name or uh, uh, title, if you want to use it, we, to identify ourselves. But the churches of Christ have no headquarters. We have... Uh, no place you can go to uh, find out anything about all the churches of Christ. Uh, we are autonomous. Uh, the word means that we're self-governing. Uh, so the Northside Church of Christ governs itself, uh, organized under a group of elders that lead that church. Uh, the church and other places uh, 
East Point here in Wichita, the Sioux Falls Church of Christ, the uh, Burlington, Iowa Church of Christ, the Watermill Congregation in Springfield are all autonomous. Uh, we have similar beliefs. We fellowship together. Uh, we do some things a little differently because we look at the Bible just a little bit differently. But in general, we look at the Bible, settle our own decision about what it means. Uh, that's how the churches of Christ operate. So uh, the material that we use is authored by different men. They're all Christians. Uh, some of them were written quite a while ago, but they're good studies. Uh, <clears throat> so they're written by different men that are members of the church. So that's who we are and where our material comes from. Uh, one thing we do each week on the program is mention a Church of Christ or uh, one that supports us somewhere. And today, let me just tell you about the home church, since we're talking about it. Uh, the Northside Church of Christ, 4545 North Meridian in Wichita. Uh, if you're coming through Wichita or you live in this area, come visit us sometime. I'd be glad to meet you. Uh, I have visitors pretty regularly that uh, I watch the program and stop in to see what we do there and see the home church. Uh, glad to have company any time. Uh, of course, anywhere you live, watching whatever market you're in, there's probably a Church of Christ close to you, so we invite you to visit one of them and thank them for providing this program for you. All right, totally food question. Yeah. Uh, a <laughs> person asks, are we not to eat food given to idols? Well, uh, a little challenging to know what perspective this question comes from. It could be that a person is reading along and studying and they come to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and they uh, read some things about food sacrificed to idols and kind of wonder, well, what is this about? And does it apply to us today? Uh, it could be that maybe a person has sincerely come out of uh, a pagan religion, converted to Christianity, and they want to know. Well, um, Cult, there are cultures today where idolatry, idolatry is still practiced, uh, where uh, multiple uh, worshiping uh, foreign gods uh, I, um, and idol statues. Um, and we need to understand, of course, being a Christian, if you're uh, a, of Christ following Jesus, you're proclaiming one Lord and one faith through one baptism, Ephesians 4 says. Uh, we can't have multiple gods. So uh, certainly that's not something that Christians should be a part of, and what I, I mean, worshiping idols. Now, the, the subject of eating meat sacrificed to idols, as I said, is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It won't be on your screen, but at the beginning of that chapter, Paul says, Paul writes, <clears throat> Now about food sacrificed to idols... Uh, we know that all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, uh, but the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. Okay, so Paul makes it pretty clear. Uh, there's not an issue, and that was certainly in the multicultural facet of the Corinthian church, it was a problem because lots of these Christians had come out of idolatrous religions and some of them had a big issue of conscience or whether or not they could partake of a meal where that meat had been sacrificed uh, to or in the name of an idol. 
and that really gave them problems with their conscience. And the church wants to know, well, how do we deal with this? And so, so Paul's dealing with this. And his principle is this. First of all, an idol's nothing. Now, you really don't have to worry about it. You it when you understand that, it gives you immense freedom. But, he says, uh, this is verse 7, not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. They have a, a conscience problem, and Paul says don't defile your conscience. If you really believe it's wrong, you know, certainly don't want to do that. And if you have the freedom, if you know that that meat <clears throat> is not anything, that idol's not anything, you feel free to eat, don't abuse your freedom by becoming a stumbling block to your brother or sister who does have a problem with it. And some, so it might not be an issue we deal with a lot directly today, but there are some principles that we can learn from uh, these scriptures. Uh, one, regardless of your rights, consider how your actions affect others. Two, never cause someone else to sin. Three, limit your liberty in love for your brother or sister and avoid anything that might make someone else stumble or uncomfortable uh, or even sin in their conscience. So I hope that helps. Read 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14 for more uh, in-depth study. All righty. Uh, can a preacher be an apostle? That's what this viewer wants to know. And I know why they're asking that probably. I've seen uh, signs in front of church buildings where the pastor or uh, reverend or whatever he calls himself sometimes calls themselves an apostle uh, as the leader of that church. So uh, people do that. And the viewer wants to know, can a preacher be an apostle? Well, a preacher can call himself anything he wants. Uh, he can make up any title that his congregation will go along with, I guess. And in one sense, apostle just means messenger. So in one sense, we're all apostles. All Christians are messengers of the good word. But the Bible also uses the term apostle for uh, the original 12 men who were special and selected uh, by Jesus, and he told them, you will be my witnesses. You're my special messengers. So the term apostle is used for that. Uh, so can a preacher be a messenger? Yes, hopefully. Uh, but calling themselves an apostle is a little bit shaky because <clears throat> it implies the original <clears throat> 12. Excuse me. Uh, there were qualifications to be an apostle. If you remember, Judas died, and they had to pick another one. And here's the qualifications that we find in Acts chapter 1 and verse 21. Uh, Peter said, we've got to choose a new apostle. We've got to choose one to replace Judas. And here's the rules. We've got to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time, from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. All right, so Peter says we've got to pick a guy that's been around us ever since John baptized Jesus and clear through the resurrection and a witness of the resurrection has seen Jesus alive. So remember they picked between Matthias and another and they chose Matthias, but uh, that's the restriction. So can an apostle, can a preacher really be an apostle? 
Uh, if he is, he's going to be really old to meet those qualifications. So, no, a preacher really can't be an apostle. Uh, glad you've been with us today. Let's answer a trivia question before we get out of here. Who was Lot's uncle? And most of you probably know that was Abraham. Abraham let his nephew Lot have the good land. Genesis 11, you can read about that. Thank you for being with us today, and we appreciate your good questions. We're going to be back next week trying to answer some more of them. Until then, we hope you have a great week. Know Your Bible has been presented by the Churches of Christ in your area. Churches of Christ are non-denominational, and each congregation is an independent group of Christians seeking to do God's will. Our goal is simple New Testament Christianity. We follow the Bible as our only guide. Contact us with any questions, and we encourage you to visit a Church of Christ near you.